So, topic of today is pitfalls uh, of induction intubation, basically airway management in the intoxicated or poisoned patient. There can be a couple issues when you have patients who come in, especially with mental status change, seizure, and uh, which I didn't mention here, but I'll go a little bit over it when they have ingested caustics. So this can cause, this can cause uh, some trouble when you try to get these patients uh, um, intubated. So we're going to talk a little bit about the unknown drug ingestion because most of the people, most of the people are not going to come in and say, hey doctor, I took 1,500 milligrams of imipramine unless something like that happens, which, which I have been a part of it and I was in uh, Tucson, Arizona, where a patient came in and said, I would like to be registered right now uh, because I want to kill myself. They say, well, you've got to wait here a little bit in line, and um, <laughs> we've got to get your name and your insurance number. I so, say, no, I want to go into the department because I am suicidal. And I say, wait, this is not how it works in this university medical center. So, okay. Uh, and then the patient said to the clerk, I said, I'm going to show you how this works. Pulls out a bottle of imiprimine, swallows it in, and said, I just poisoned myself. Are you going to take me in now? And then they said, okay, you can go in now, right now. <laughs> so in that, in that case, they knew that the patient had uh, a certain thing. But often you have, uh, you would have to assume that you have to do with an unknown drug ingestion. And even if the patients tell you, I took XYZ, some of these patients have psychiatric issues. And they might not tell you the truth, or they might have a hidden agenda. Or they tell you the truth in terms of the drug, but they don't tell you the truth in terms of the timing and the dose. So what I usually recommend is take a good history, obviously what did you take, when did you take it, and so on, but also be cautious and try to make sense out of, for example, the vital signs and whether this whole thing makes sense and it's plausible what they're telling you. You know, when a patient tells you, I took an overdose of cocaine and they're by no means um, sympathetic but they're like have a cholinergic syndrome and you got to be doubtful what what happened. I'm going to discuss the proper indications for intubation and uh, airway management intubation of these patients and we're going to learn a little bit about the pitfalls and avoid them uh, in the management of these patients. So here is uh, the imipramine overdose. Now let me said that obviously imipramine this is like I wouldn't say a drug of the past but it has been widely replaced by other antipsychotic medications and the other antidepressants. However, imipramine and tricyclic and tetracyclic and bicyclic uh, medications, but tricyclic antidepressants are still around. For example, as an adjunct in chronic pain management. So they haven't totally disappeared from the market. It is just that the amount of patients overdosing on those medications are not in, in numbers as, as large as they used to be. So here's a classic case. A 28-year-old woman um, comes in and um, she is brought into the ED after taking 3,000 milligrams of imipramine 45 minutes ago. Upon arrival, the blood pressure is 110 over 70 and the pulse rate is 120. She's confused, drowsy, and tends to fall over when she sits upright. And she receives really um, cardiac. Uh, she receives really cardiac monitoring and IV access. So I want you to look at this and the information right here. 
So there are a couple things you need to know. First question I'm going to ask you to make this a little bit more interactive. What is a potentially dangerous or potentially life-threatening dose of tricyclic antidepressants? If you know the answer, you will look at certain patients differently if you have already the information. So if you know the milligram amount, you're going to be, your adrenaline level is going to go up immediately. So do you know the dose? Okay, if you don't know it, that's okay. But if you had the knowledge, you look at these patients as an acute emergency because the dose is 1,000 milligram in an adult. As of 1,000 milligram, things start, could go, could become dangerous. Additionally, the patient has taken this 45 minutes ago, so that means a certain amount of absorption has already taken place. Second question. A classic question, a classic, uh, let's put it this way. I have, to, I have to word it a certain way. This is a question which could, which look, could look awfully similar to, to a question which you might be asked in the boards of emergency medicine. I'm not saying that this is exactly the question they're going to ask you, but this is a question which might be very similar. On an EKG, on an EKG, what is the earliest EKG finding of an acute tricyclic overdose? There are five possibilities, but I want to know. <laughs> I'm not going to give you the five, but I want to know what is in your what is your opinion? What is the earliest EKG sign of a tricyclic overdose? Say it again. PVCs is a sign, but it is not the earliest sign. Sinus tachycardia. That's the right answer. Does this patient have sinus tachycardia? The patient has tachycardia. And I don't think it's VTAC with a blood pressure of 110. So if you show an EKG, that is the one. Now, you're going to get other answers such as QRS widening, uh, QTC prolongation, even PR interval uh, prolongation, um, ventricular tachycardia, you get all of those answers. But sinus tachycardia is the earliest sign. And that is something. So this patient has taken a potentially life-threatening overdose and shows signs of toxicity. What it means, if you know these numbers, tachycardia and 3,000 milligram, you know you should be moving fast. This patient can crash and burn in front of you within seconds, even though the patient has slurred speech talking to you. They might just fall over. You don't have a pulse. You just have a 3D pulse. And all what you see then on the monitor is tech. So what do you need to do? You obviously, ABC airway. And if this patient has some dysrhythmia, some white complex tachycardia, what's the first thing you're reaching for? In other words, what would you like to have at the bedside? besides the, all the airway management and everything in order to reverse this. Okay, bicarb, that's right. So you want to have bicarb, you want to have two amps of bicarb, IV push fast, and you want to mix three amps already in a, in a D5W um, solution, which would be 150 ml, 8.4%, and let it go at 150 ml per hour. Okay. So this is what happened. So she's lavaged, and they find pill fragments. And everybody's happy about these pill fragments, even though what does it mean? 
What does that mean if you find pill fragments in terms of absorption? The pill fragments is a carrier substance. You might have up to 90% absorption and still get pill fragments out. It doesn't mean a whole lot. But it used to be that you see pill fragments, everybody is happy because you think you did a good job. And the patient, these are removed, and the patient gets now charcoal, and at that point the patient loses consciousness, vomits, aspirates the charcoal, and then she seizes with an unsecured airway. Okay? So that patient aspirates, and I don't want to know what the rhythm is. The patient has a two weeks rocky ICU course with a charcoal aspiration pneumonia and ends up with um, ARDS and develops something called bronchiolitis obliterans. So here's my question. This is, goes right into the airway management. Obviously. What's he called? I learned this year. Monday morning quarterback. <laughs> That's one of the impressions I learned when I came to this country. So this is a classic Monday morning situation. Should this patient have been intubated before she got all of those interventions as a prophylactic? The answer is yes. And we do this all the time with our trauma patients. A patient comes in intoxicated with alcohol. He just wrapped around the car, around the tree. He's bashing around. There's no questions asked. Are you cooperating going to the CT? And he's shouting out profanity and takes a swing at the doctor or the nurse. That patient gets intubated because you want to get him to think. You're not going to wait till he kind of takes the CT scanner apart. Even though you, might, you don't know whether he has an epidural hematoma, an intracranial bleed, it could just be the alcohol. But this is not the patient you go down, you come up, intubate then because you couldn't get him in the scanner. You intubate him. This patient was not intubated, and that patient should have been intubated. And with the information I gave you, a potentially life-threatening intoxication. Now, if this patient didn't get charcoal, you could make a point that you might want to wait, but you're doing an intervention with, if this patient vomits, that could go really bad. Additionally, if you have charcoal in your throat, the intubation process will be more difficult, okay? Because this is going to virtually, it's very hard to suction with a booster suction. You have obstructed, uh, an obstructed airway and so on. To add on to this, in terms of airway management, if you have a patient with a caustic ingestion, these patients will not receive charcoal because not only might they need intubation, but they also might need endoscopy, esophagoscopy, and gastroscopy. So these are contraindications. This is a classic pitfall. There are patients who should get charcoal in selected cases, and you can definitely consult with Jeff who should get, if you are in doubt, or with a poison center. But you should not just throw charcoal at any and everyone and anyone who just comes into the door and has some sort of an intoxication. Be aware that there are contraindications, absolute contraindications, relative contraindications, and patients where you can give it, but might have, might not really need it. Okay, there are patients who really have a non-toxic ingestion, where it's clear, you know, like patient took 50 milligrams of prednisone or two birth control pills from mom's little handbag, and the kid is 10 years old. Does that kid need chocolate? No. No, you tell them it's a non-toxic ingestion, you know? Okay, so here are the priorities. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like ACLS? It is. Airway with C-spine control, because patients with intoxication 
can be traumatized and you might not know. And they might not know themselves if they have, for example, some opioid, some analgesic on board like heroin, for example, they might have just fallen down the stairs and have broken their neck. They might have just had a seizure and fell down and they need a C-spine control. So these patients might be good candidates for C-spine control unless you find them in bed with the needle still sticking on the sofa on the couch. But you need to get a good history. What happened? What happened? How did the apartment look like? Etc. Breathing, obviously, cardiovascular, disability, and exposure. So in mnemonic, you look at airway for patency, breathing with oxygenation, protection, and secretion control. And what I would like to add on here, not only oxygenation, but also carbon dioxide or uh, carbon dioxide control. And what you do is you also manipulate the pH by, for example, hyperventilating. For example, again, coming back to the tricyclic overdose. You should know if you have it to do with a tricyclic overdose or with a classic sodium channel inhibitor that toxicity is enhanced in an acid environment. Toxicity is decreased in a more alkaline environment. Now, if you give a patient who is already acidotic, hypoxic, <coughs> acidotic, and has something basically hypostasis and he, the patient doesn't perfuse that well, and the patient is already, let's say, a 7.25, or just had a seizure. That patient is also acidotic, has lactic acidosis. Now you want to change the pH and you ingest, you inject a dose of bicarbonate too. On the long run, is the PC, what, what's the pH going to do? The pH is going to drop for a moment, but in reality the CO2 goes up. And if you don't control the CO2, that patient will not show a benefit on the long run unless you put a tube in this unconscious or seizing patient and do some hyperventilation, or you do at least um, you control these people with capnometry. There's a good use for capnometry. Let's say you get it down to 32 to 35 millimeters mercury. You don't need to necessarily get them all the way down to 20. That's not necessary. But if you had a CO2 before of 50, and the patient had cardiac dysrhythmias, the patient had a white complex tachycardia, and you give them oxygen, and you ventilate them down from, let's say, 50 to 30, you might, without anything else, see a change in the rhythm just through the intervention of breathing. So therefore, it's not only to protect the airway if you intubate these patients, it is also a therapeutic intervention. Okay? It can be a therapeutic intervention because these patients, let's say a mixed overdose with opioids with a decrease of respiratory drive, an increase of CO2, and a drug, additional drug on board, which is more toxic in an, ac in an acid environment, benefit greatly from early intubation and ventilation and oxygenation. Circulation, obviously, these patients can become hypotensive, so you need to give them fluids often, and uh, you uh, give them fluids, and you do with exposure, you, give, you do preservation of neurofunction, and you can get a good diagnosis. For example, the patient was not a nice guy, he's intoxicated, he's a cocaine guy, he thought he's Superman, 
and he was stabbed at the same time with a knife into his chest. So now he's an intoxicated patient and a trauma patient. And patients with intoxication have a good likelihood of being at the same time trauma patients. They can have seizures, they fall down, they have certain behavioral patterns which makes them less likely uh, to be liked in society, like in night bars and, you know, like in. They behave uh, differently in traffic. They drive faster on the freeway and don't take so much, uh, pay so much attention to other people. And they simply fall down the stairs and they have poor judgment in terms of, you know, like doing certain things in life where they are trauma prone. So what are the toxicologic resuscitation methods? You can alter absorption and you have antidotes, that's the A. B is the basics, which we, do, we did together. C, change catabolism. What we just heard here, for example, the fat emulsion, maybe possibly like acting as a sink. That's, um, sorry, this is distributed differently, but ca change catabolism, a classic example is Tylenol overdose, and you change the catabolism if you give N-acetylcysteine and you push this into a different metabolic pathway. Distribute differently, the one with the fat sink, that might be one where you offer a, a different compartment to redistribute. One of the classic examples is always mentioned in the books is if you give for cyanide intoxication uh, a methemoglobin uh, former. That's, for, as a model, one of the things which is often uh, mentioned. And enhanced elimination, that would be, for example, dialysis, hemodialysis, but also like diuresis, um, alkaline diuresis, but, but it can also be through other routes. It can be the ventilatory route. If a patient has inhaled volatile hydrocarbons and the patient is unconscious as a result of inhaling, like basically like volatile anesthetics, which are hydrocarbons like fluorinated, chlorinated, and this patient is apneic, one of the ways of getting rid of these hydrocarbons through the body is through the lung surface. So if that patient is intubated and you increase the tidal volume, basically the, the minute volume of ventilation, you eliminate faster the amount of hydrocarbons dissolved in the body because they go from a dissolved state into a, a vaporized state, basically into a gas form, and then out the body via the tube. So. Intubated patients being ventilated with a higher tidal volume or a higher uh, minute volume, this can serve as enhanced elimination. Another enhanced elimination may be through the gut, virtually through the stool. A classic example would be something which is recirculated between the liver and the duodenum, enterohepatic circulation, and you give something and it precipitates it in that part of the body, like cholestyramine, uh, or like something which is basically binding the stuff and it appears in the stool in a bound form, that would be also enhancing elimination. So there are several ways of doing that. Uh, what are the mine, um, five mine, uh, methods of mortality? So you can die a death of airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and elimination. This is basically the way you die. You know, patients have an obstructed airway they just drank acid or uh, lye, and their airway swells up to a point where nothing goes. And if you don't go for
for the infraglottic airway, this patient might die just simply because they have an obstructed airway and they were not intubated early. That is one of the things where patients benefit greatly, and this is also a pitfall, not intubating these potentially sick patients because they are still breathing, they're still saturating. But meanwhile, they're already drooling, they're already having a hoarse voice, they're having everything on the, on the horizon which makes you think they might have an airway problem. So if they might have an airway problem, and acid ingestions attacking the upper airway are classic for this, they should get an early intubation under visualization with awake intubation and not with paralyzation so that if you give like now succulinicholine or rocuronium, there's no way back. They can't hold on to this airway anymore before they're breathing through two millimeters obstructed area. And you can just poke something in here and get them a cricothyroidotomy but breathing. And you go in under visualization with an, an um, uh, endoscopically and even describe the damage having been done. So these are the patients where you should intubate early, in doubt. In particular, if that patient needs, for example, what's called advanced imaging study, a CT scan, and the patient leaves your department. And the moment you, you might have, and this, this is the thing, if the patient leaves the department and the patient had these signs and symptoms, and the moment the patient's out and you have second thoughts, this is the time, this is the wrong time, because you bet you're going to get this call. Doctor, we have a problem in CT. What is it? Oh, it's nothing. We just ran out of something. It's like, oh, so it's good that this is not the patient I just sent down who just herniated or just obstructed the airway. So in doubt, these patients should be intubated early. And they are my two favorite types of patients. The ones with the ingestion of corrosives, acid and lye, and the ones with inhalation injuries. In doubt, they should be intubated, like steam inhalation, hot air, kind of this, but you know, if they singe nasal hair. These are patients, classic candidate. Now, burns can also be caused by hydrocarbon, by liquid hydrocarbon. Patients drinking, for example, gasoline, they may have an airway problem, and you tell me why that is. Why would, they, why would these patients have a potential airway problem? What does gasoline do to your mucosa? It, yeah, it's a corrosive. And what is the pathomechanism behind it? Let's say, have you ever seen a patient doused in gasoline, you know, like hanging downwards in the, in the seat belt and the gasoline dripping from above? Have you seen that before? I have. And now you've got to cut these guys out, hold them, and pull them out of the car where you have like basically these inflated things here. When you worked in rescue, you saw, you can't see these things, so like every, oh, it smells funny, you know? Now you get them, you strip them naked in EMS, everything smells like gasoline. And the skin looks how, wherever gasoline touched the skin, especially under the, under the clothes, which acts as a wet chamber. How does the skin look like in that area? That's not even mucosa, that's real skin. How does the skin look like? after half an hour being exposed with gasoline-doused clothes. Red and blisters. And the, the name for that type of skin, decision, uh, skin condition is called defatting dermatitis. 
the gasoline and all of these solvents take the fat out. And what you're left with is a specialist kind of skin. looks like a burn. And this is how your mucosa looks like. And at the end, you can't put a tube in, and you end up with this one. And the same thing when they inhale this, the entire bronchial system, everything's swollen. These people are wheezing all over the place. They are like, they are really in bad shape. So this is the breathing. Circulation, patient become hypovolemic. Patient might have an alpha blocker on board or a substance which acts as an alpha blocker, such as tricyclics. Tricyclics have strong alpha antagonistic properties, so they might drop their blood pressure, and you might have to give them fluids and alpha agonists, like norepinephrine. And disability, you know, they might not be able to move, like respiratory arrest is to some extent also a disability, but you know, neurologic disability such as a seizure, and elimination, a death of elimination. And what I mean with elimination would be the death through liver failure or the death through renal failure. These are the usual ones we are looking at. Okay, so autoabsorption, here, here are the things. I'm not saying that's what we should do, but these are the things you will read in the books, and that's what's out in the literature. You have gastric emptying through lavage, ipecac, and, uh, and you know, like this is like the, the trivial pursuit question, ipecac. Hey, do you have ipecac in the refrigerator? Which movie? Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> Just watch the movie and watch for this part. Do you have Ipecac in the, in the refrigerator? Calling, you know, the kids at home, the babysitter. Do you have Ipecac in the refrigerator? Sleepless in Seattle. Induced emesis, whole bowel irrigation, endoscopy, and surgery. What decontamination of gastric emptying by surgery. Give me a classic example when surgery, a few cases when surgery might be indicated for gastric emptying. The classic one. That's a pretty high-level question there, Dr. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> I give you a hint. A plane lands from Columbia in John F. Kennedy Airport, and the patient just had a seizure, a 250 blood pressure, and 150 pulse. This patient comes through Elmhurst Emergency Department, Queens, where I work, and we intubated him with, with uh, barbiturates. We had to give him tons of barbiturate and at this point even paralysis and rolled him right to the, um, after a ch an x-ray of the, of the abdomen, and we rolled him right to the operating room. This patient had what? Packing. He was a mule. So he had cocaine on board and there's no way you can do anything with, uh, with charcoal. There's actually no way with endoscopy because all that you do is you poke these things over and make the situation worse. You need to go in with surgery, okay? And it may be gastric surgery. It actually may be even bowel surgery, okay? So you have to run. Those who did some surgery, they call it running the entire bowel and go with your hand and feel, oh, there's a little package. Okay, let's open here or like let's fish it out a little bit. Okay, with and without gastric emptying. There's decontamination with activated charcoal. Um, you have uh, multiple doses of charcoal. Charcoal lavage, which you will find, so they get charcoal and then they lavage the charcoal out. <laughs> You're going to have a very good relationship with your nurses if you ask for that. And cholestyramine, that would be enterohepatic uh, also, and polystyrene uh, sulfonate. Um, uh, 
Jeff, what's the, what's the name for uh, uh, KXLA, KXLA, for example, lithium, for example, lithium overdose. So pitfalls, skin and eye decontamination, often forgotten, um, uh, decontamination of uh, basically of uh, secondary contamination of healthcare providers, in particular with organophosphate, especially those who evaporate uh, later on in a closed environment. For example, Tokyo subway event where the patient, where these patients were um, doused with these, uh, basically they had uh, condensation of this organophosphate called sarin on their on their clothes. The subway system had an excellent ventilation system. They came into the hospital, which had a bad ventilation system, and people were not decontaminated, meaning clothes being taken off, and you had secondary contamination of healthcare providers and the people who were uh, patients. Gastric emptying is quite controversial. I, 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 would f I would think that at one point during the year this might fill, uh, at, least, at least would be worthwhile one journal club article, how what gastric uh, emptying uh, is good for, whether it's, you know, whether it changes outcome. It's all about the outcome. But uh, it's actually poor literature in terms of gastric emptying with this. But it has been used widely, uh, but there, there are issues with that. A single strategy is not sufficient. And decision factors, for example, with that is like the time elapse, the patient's age, the patient's comorbidity. Let's say the patient's triple vessel disease. You want to do like the gastric, and maybe not such a good idea. Uh, type of poisoning, the risk-benefit ratio, and whether you have a high-risk uh, ingestion. And again, this is also a combined toxicology airway lecture. This has airway risks. You put a hose down, the patient is fighting you, you might injure the larynx. And now you have an airway problem, a homemade airway problem, or let's say iatrogenic problem. And people start to ask questions. They say, doctor, what happened? When the patient came in, the patient could speak and breathe normally. After you did something with him, he was hoarse. Actually, he, was, he had no more voice. He was aphonic and needed to be intubated. It was obviously a difficult intubation. And now he needs for a while a tracheostomy because his larynx is broken. What happened? So you need to come up with a good explanation. And that's what I summarize under risk-benefit ratio. Okay. Um, what five questions must you answer before giving a medication or doing a procedure? You need to know about the indications for that. There are absolute indications relative and there are contraindications. You need to know the contraindications. You need to know what complications might ensue during that procedure. Giving a classic example, when you take your boards and you give an antibiotic and you did not ask, do you have a penicillin or cephalosporin overdose, they're going to guide you down the pathway of an anaphylactic reaction. So every time you give a medication, you should know what are the contraindications. They can be anaphylaxis, they can be hypotension, they can be tachycardia, they can be a lot of complications. But you need to know a procedure. You put a central line in. What is one of them subclavian? A pneumothorax, a hemothorax. Now it's not good it's not good enough that you know how to put a central line in. You need to know, oh, what could go wrong? Oh now here's a pneumothorax, what are you gonna do now? I'm done with the, with the central line. You guys take care of the pneumothorax. You know, I'm basically my shift is over. No, that, that's not how it goes. So you need to know what to do in that case and how to discover it. 
for example, chest x-ray or an ultrasound. You need to know the dosage and the route. It's also like uh, lots of things. For example, diazepam, should or should you not give it IM for seizure? Should or should not? Valium. The a to answer this question is you just need to open the package and read the insert. That gives you the answer. See, I, I'm not saying this to put you on the spot. I'm just saying, what a surprise. Whereas lorazepam and metazolam have an excellent absorption through IM because they're water-soluble. Diazepam doesn't. Diazepam is a classic IV drug. You can use it rectally if you have breakthrough seizures as a, what's called rescue seizure medication you can if at home you know they have seizure and they're far away remote <coughs> and what the relatives learn is to basically pull down the pants put this 10 milligrams of diazepam and squeeze this like it looks like a little um, you know like these bob syringes for the kids just smaller you squeeze it in hold it it absorbs excellent rectally but it doesn't absorb well through the muscles so you should know which one are good IV. Now, now lorazepam and diazepam are excellent also IV. But it's diazepam which is poorly absorbed through the muscle. And so this is something which is a classic route thing. You know? Oh, I treated the seizure, but I had problems because I gave 20 milligrams IM diazepam. Yeah, because it doesn't really it gets absorbed erratically. It may get absorbed, but it may not. So indications, oral gastric lavage, it's you remember the, the, the imipramine patient? Inability to protect the airway, okay? Let's say you work in a place, you're going to give charcoal, but you don't know how to intubate a difficult airway. Bad idea. Bad idea. You should have a setting like an ICU setting or somebody who really knows how to do it. After recent serious ingestion, uh, you, should, you should, uh, should do this. And recent ingestion of toxin not well absorbed to activate charcoal. You may do that. And uh, later ingestion, which delayed things. Okay. Contraindications. Corrosives, I mentioned that. Petroleum destillates like gasoline. Non-toxic ingestions. You don't need that. You, know? you don't need the risk. And to punish the patient. I've seen that. This is trouble. You know, and nowadays, patients will complain. Bucko, why did you do that? Well, because you were a jerk. You were disturbing my night shift. You know, that's <laughs> not a good one. Because if that patient has now esophageal rupture or an injury to the airway, that's a serious issue. Uh, and, but I'm saying this because it has been done. Um, complications, there can be epistaxis, turbinate fractures. Um, also, when you introduce an NG tube, like to put charcoal in, same. Esophageal and uh, lacerations and perforation, laryngeal spasm, laryngeal trauma, pharyngeal laceration. I am not a big fan of gastric lavage. I'm not, because of those reasons. If you really don't need it, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of a difference, but it can cause potentially a lot of problems. Activated charcoals, almost all toxic ingestions, but there are contraindications. I mentioned them, corrosives. And also, also petroleum destillates. They need to go and look into this esophagus. Additionally, if you give it for petroleum destillates, 
they evaporated the stomach, they have now gas in the stomach, and they vomit now the petroleum distillate charcoal mix into a corrosive esophagus. This is like, it's your dream, that airway, this dream. It smells good, it's everything is there, you can't see anything. You might end up with a, tra uh, um, um, a, uh, a cricothyroidotomy, and when you do your first push, charcoal comes out, you don't know how much you're ventilating, that type of stuff. Toxicants which are not well absorbed, sorry, to um, charcoal, hold on, this is, uh-oh. Okay, to charcoal. All right, classic board-like question. Give me one example of a drug which typically doesn't stick to charcoal, not well absorbed to charcoal, a classic intoxication. Lithium, excellent, lithium. Heavy metal, these type of things, you know. So they don't stick well to charcoal. Bowel obstruction, ileus, and esophageal, that goes without saying, but you know, if there's anything which looks like perforation, these are not good charcoal. The surgeon will tell you, okay? Complications, nausea and emesis, aspiration, bronchiolitis obliterans, death, charcoal empyema, constipation, diarrhea, and severe abdominal pain, which makes you think, did that patient just perf, or is it my charcoal? So, now, poisons and antidotes. Organophosphates and carbamates, we had this atropine, digoxin, FAB antibodies, Benzodiazepines, I'm not going to go into that, but that's, that may be a bad idea, but it exists as an antidote, flumazenil. Uh, beta blocker, calcium uh, channel blocker, in this case calcium, you can give calcium, but glucagon in higher doses, so that pharmacy will ask questions, why do you need so much? Acetaminophen, acetylcysteine, uh, opioid, and naloxone, but also naltrexone, nalmethine, and these drugs. Anticholinergics. Uh, physostigmine, there's a whole lecture which you have about this issue, more like a diagnostic tool, but not so much as a therapeutic tool. You can give it, but the indication is different. Okay? It's a good thing, but it's not, might not be a good thing to start a drip on those things. TCA, sodium bicarbonate, and snakes and spider with certain antisera, like the crofab, which was discussed earlier. What five questions must you answer before you give that? Of course, we just talked about that. Here's, for example, flumazenil as a contraindication. Morel in critical care. These are case reports, but seizure after flumazenil uh, administration in a case of combined benzodiazepine and tricyclic. Now, here's the question in terms of antidote. If a patient comes in, okay, tricyclic, they have five different physiologic and pharmacologic actions. The first one is sodium channel blocker. We know that, okay? Like, also like local anesthetics, type one, type one A, like lidocaine, popivacaine, um, and those things. So, so, by the way, also like Benadryl has also sodium channel property, same sodium channel property. So, they have that. They have, what else? anticholinergic properties, earliest sign of EKG changes, uh, tricyclic, sinus tachycardia, like Benadryl, by the way, too. Earliest sign, sinus tachycardia. They have an alpha-blocking property, which makes patients potentially hypotensive, 
and you need to give them a lot of fluids and potentially you might have to give them norepinephrine to get the blood pressure up. And the patient has also, these, these drugs have potentially, and they do have that, GABA antagonistic properties, which makes the patient seize. Those, those patients tend to seize. And I think there's one more, uh, alpha, GABA. Biogenic, uh, exactly. That's why they're given. They, uh, they basically interfere with the reuptake of epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine on different types, but different. But that might be an issue if you have a com combined ingestion of, let's say, monoamine oxidase inhibitor and a high dose of those uh, medications. So what would you give to a patient, potentially, if that patient had a seizure due to a tricyclic overdose? You give him patient an anti-seizure medication, right? Such as diazepam. Now that patient did a big favor to the doctor, tried to do it, tried to do it. <laughs> but the doctor did not recognize that the patient wanted to do something good. The patient took a poison, tricyclic, and took the antidote for the seizure. But the doctor says, this patient is obtunded. I need to find out whether that patient took something which is in the benzodiazepine group. And yes, the patient wakes up and has immediately a seizure. Okay? So they're antagonizing the antidote, which is in that case a bad idea. So a 42-year-old woman found unconscious, GCS, that's in the case report, but the thing is that you don't do GCSs. They are useless for intoxicated patients. They are usually for trauma patients. BP120, heart rate, she has the sinus tachycardia, dilated pupil, that's anticholinergic, EKG sinus tachycardia, but the patient already has 120 QRS. So that patient is already widening the QRS because what should be her QRS? What would be a nice QRS? Like 80 milliseconds. She's already above 100. So she's 120. Don't protocol. Dextrose, oxygen, Narcan, thiamine, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, protocol is given. And somebody has the glorious idea to give a milligram of uh, flumazenil, and five minutes later the patient develops a tonic-clonic seizure, and that is difficult to control. Now this is like a whole lecture why this is difficult to control. You would think the patient took 10 milligrams, let's say 20 milligrams of diazepam, and the patient got the equivalent of the antidote for these 20 milligrams of diazepam. Two milligrams of flumazenil, five milligrams. Now you want to reverse these milligrams of flumazenil with the same dose. It won't work. It won't work. There's something happening at the receptor in the body where you need much higher doses to go back to the baseline. TCA poisoning. Um, so contraindication. It may aggravate conduction disturbances. Um, the uh, causes acystolene versus hypotension cause seizure. This is by Paul Pintel. Asystole, that would be that would be physostigmine, complicated uh, physostigmine treatment from tricyclic antidote. I mean, this is like for a while ago it was an ICU case. The thing is that if you have a sodium channel blocker, you can have conduction issues. Now, these conduction issues, you will not see them that well because the patient might have a reuptake blocker of their catecholamines and have sinus tachycardia. 
so it's hiding in the EKG. But once you give physostigma and you slow these folks down, all of a sudden it's there. Actually, as a matter of fact, that patient went asystolic, which is not so nice. So, and that as a result of the physostigma. Now, come back to the airway management. Potentially, you might have a second thought of giving what kind of muscle relaxant in patients with severe tricyclic overdose and want to use another alternative muscle relaxant. Maybe out of these theoretical concerns. Well, I would be probably careful with succinylcholine in this case. And that might actually be a good case for induction with rocuronium, a milligram per kg, in order to avoid all of those concerns. So diagnosis of acute poisoning history, obviously physical exam, which includes the vital signs, the mental status, and something called toxidrome. Ultimately, you have laboratory EKG and radiographs. So a couple one, you hopefully, you have seen this probably, but this is always a good thing. Look at the vital signs, starting with the respiration. Now, different hospitals, different respiration rates for the entire hospital, obviously. Everybody breathes at 20, everybody breathes at 16. I doubt that people are really counting that. Now with the pulse oximetry, you can actually see how they're breathing, but it's like something else. So people come in when they're acidotic, or they have central stimulation like acidotic with ethylene glycol, nicotine, organophosphates in the early stages. Later on, just reverse it. Salicylates centrally cause uh, initially uh, salicylate poisoning, sympathetic and theophylline. Bradypnea, breathing slowly, obviously barbiturates, clonidine, which has um, similarities to opioid overdoses, uh, ethanol. Uh, patients uh, with organophosphate at the end stage and obviously sympathetic uh, uh, sedative hypnotics such as what? Other ones like benzos, propofol, but you know glufetamide and you know like the older ones which are not so out anymore but there are, there are a couple of ones there. So to go back to TCAs, there's a high risk intoxication. Clinical assessment and EKG are most valuable tools and that comes earlier than the lab and dictate the therapy. So you look for sinus tag, rightward axis deviation. You should be able to identify this on the spot. How do you identify that? What are you looking for? How do you identify a rightward axis deviation in an EKG? Yes, R wave in, AVR and And what about an S in one? Okay, an S in one. Okay, uh, more than 100 milliseconds, and that's late, okay? QTC prolongation. These are your options on the multiple choice test. It's a classic one. This looks awfully similar than a board question. And the correct answer is sinus tachycardia as the earliest sign. All the other ones come later, and you can't predict as they appear. All right. Let's summarize this. We should, if you deal with the intoxicated patients, in particular with patients you don't know what they took, should adhere to the principles of patient care, ABCs. That's always a good idea. Okay, if they're not breathing, there's no magic behind it to take an ambu bag. If they continue to be apneic, you intubate them. 
more patients die because they weren't intubated than the emergency physician was aware of some esoteric antidote. People die because their airway was not secure, because they are not breathing, and because they become hypotensive and nobody did anything about it. History and physical are paramount. Like the whole thing when you do the board review, well, you send them back, you go for the pill bottles, you want to know what the situation was you, at home, you know, like pill bottles, alcohol bottles around, was this disorganized environment, these type of things. If you don't ask, you will not find out. Know your common high-risk intoxications. These are tricyclics, calcium channel blocker, beta blocker, digoxin, iron, methanol, obviously also ethylene glycol, acetaminophen, if not recognized early enough or in high dose or chronic and acute and chronic, and be aware of the five key points of all procedures, including airway management and charcoal administration when you do a procedure or you give an antidote. And that's it. Thank you very much.